Heavenly Father, uh, thank you, Lord, that we're all back here ready to study again after a couple of weeks' break. And thank you, Father, for our time and family and with friends uh, over this Thanksgiving holiday. And thank you that I was delivered back safely from travel. And just in general, Father, thank you for the many blessings we have. It's so easy to take for granted the things you have uh, appointed to us, the comforts of life, the, the excesses of so many things, Father, that so many in the world lack. And we don't count your graciousness or your love by those things. We don't, we don't measure you according to what you give us. We just simply acknowledge it, Father, and thank you for it. And we ask, Father, that with what you give us in your word, there would be something everlasting. Because that's why we're here, Father. We know this is what lasts when everything else fails. And it becomes not only a guide to our life now, Father, but the hope and promise of what we look forward to in eternity. And, and it's that hope, Father, that transcends so many things of this life that may get us depressed or concerned or scared. So, Father, what a blessing it is to have your word. Thank you, Father. Teach us tonight, Father, through me or through whomever might speak, and by your spirit only, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, the Lord's ready to put Saul's wavering heart to the test. Tests in Scripture are brought by God to reveal what's in a person's heart. That's not because God doesn't know. He knows what's in a person's heart, of course. But when the Lord wants to expose the inner person, the inner motives, the inner thought of a person, then he will construct what the Bible calls a test, a trial. And a test offers the Lord an opportunity to encourage his servant to obey his command and to do the right thing so they may receive the praise of the Lord. But there is an equal opportunity in a test for the person to disobey and fall into ruin. So we can find examples in Scripture of men who have passed these kinds of tests before. For example, Job, maybe the classic example, he was tested severely by the enemy according to God's desires, and in that his heart was revealed, a heart that was obedient and faithful to the Lord. Despite the severity of it, he never wavered, or at least in the end he didn't. Then there's Abraham. He passed the test of willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountain. Uh, You have Joseph, Hezekiah, Daniel. They all in their own time passed a test of faithfulness as God tested them. But you can also find examples in Scripture of people who did not pass tests God gave them. Peter failed the test Christ gave him when he denied Christ three times. Virtually the entire generation of Israel that left Egypt failed ten tests in the desert when they were following Moses. And there's other examples. And in all cases, the Lord knew the heart of each person before he brought the test into being. But by observing how they respond to the test, you and I can learn an important spiritual lesson, and that's why they're given in Scripture. The motives of a heart are best revealed by how you respond to a command from God. In chapter 15, Saul receives a test from God. Even before the test begins, we've already been watching Saul deteriorate in his walk with the Lord. He's increasingly arrogant. He's increasingly prideful. He's determined to receive glory for himself. He doesn't give any attention to the Lord or his desires. And just to make sure that we don't miss Saul's descent into conceit, the Lord brings a test in chapter 15 to reveal it to us. And the Lord's already said that Saul's dynasty cannot stand. And now with this test, Saul will personally be disqualified as king, and that's a different issue. Soon the Lord's going to anoint Saul's successor, even as Saul remains on the throne for a while. The Lord's going to withdraw his spirit from Saul, even though Saul continues to rule. And the Lord's going to bring an evil spirit, we're going to hear soon, to terrorize Saul during his final years on the throne to reveal his jealous heart. So all of these things are planned. 
And to make sure we understand that God's not being unjust in any of these actions, chapter 15 is the opportunity for God to explain to us why and how Saul's reign must come to an end. And later in chapter 16, the next chapter, of course, we see the Lord selecting Saul's replacement. A king, according to the Lord's choice, who will become a striking contrast to the one who is made by the people's choice. But first, you've got to finish chapter 14, which leads us into 15. So the last few verses of 14 are where we begin, actually. Chapter 14, verse 49. Samuel writes, Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merab and the name of the younger Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahmaz, and the name of the captain of the army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. Well, why are we reading this section at the end of chapter 14? Well, it's common in ancient records to highlight a king's accomplishments by summarizing his family and his valor in military victories. Those are sort of the two things that defined your legacy as a king. So Samuel offers that kind of summary here of Saul's reign, and it's coming at this point because this is at the point where Saul's reign is officially declared dead from God's point of view. And here's the summary. You have uh, his family listed here, and at this point in his reign, his family consisted of three sons and two daughters. One of those sons we know is Jonathan. He'll become prominent later in the book. The second son, Ishvi, which goes by another name later in the book, which is Ishbosheth, if you know that name, he becomes an important character in 2 Samuel. Malachi Shua is third, and there are other sons that he has that are not listed here, but in any case, all of the sons of Saul, but one, will die violent deaths. And then you have the captain of Saul's army being mentioned as well, and I think he's mentioned because he plays a large role in the rebellion that takes place against Saul's anointed successor after Saul is gone. Then Samuel mentions Saul's military service to the nation. He's commanding standing armies, and really for the first time in Israel's history, they have a standing army now. And then it says he fought principally against the Philistines, who were Israel's strongest enemy in these years. But you notice, nevertheless, it says they remained a severe enemy all the days of Saul's reign. And he was constantly recruiting new warriors to serve him. And when he came across a valiant or a mighty man, then he would conscript them, basically, into his army. Now, when you think about every detail I just outlined from what Samuel wrote, that summary paints a picture of a failed and wasted monarchy, which is the reason it's mentioned the way it is. Saul's posterity, it's ignominious. He's fathered only a few sons, all but one of whom die violent deaths. His trusted advisor becomes a traitor. His military successes were hollow, since he never defeats the Philistines. He barely keeps them under control. He can't seem to inspire or attract anyone to serve him. He has to conscript them if he's going to get anybody at all. It's hardly the kind of legacy that would look up to his reign as king. It's failed leadership, wasted opportunity. That's the legacy that Samuel wants you to remember as you leave Saul's reign. And that's where we go now into chapter 15 where Saul's reign is judged by God. Verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, 
camel, and donkey. So Samuel comes to Saul. This is about 25 years into Saul's reign. And he announces to Saul that the Lord's purpose is to punish one of Israel's adversaries. And he prefaces his announcement with an important comment. Samuel reminds Saul that the Lord sent him to anoint Saul as king over Israel's people. Saul wasn't king because he earned it or that he inherited it. The monarchy of Israel was essentially dropped in Saul's lap. Well, the implication is Saul should have kept that fact in mind when he goes to serve the Lord so that he would keep a humble heart before the Lord. And we know that's not what Saul did. He's become very arrogant in this role. And then secondly, Samuel reminds Saul, the people he rules over are not his people, they're God's people. Israel didn't belong to Saul. Much like the judges, Saul was just anointed as a caretaker working under the authority of God. And yet he's been ruling the nation like it was his own private kingdom. And then lastly, Samuel directs Saul to listen to the words of the Lord. This is a thinly veiled rebuke, I think, of Saul's unwillingness to listen to the Lord. And we've already seen one episode of that where he ignored the instructions to not sacrifice and so on back in Gilgal. So everything that's being said here is really indicting Saul, not, not just getting his attention. And the instructions he receives are, simply put, utterly destroy the Amalekites and their king. The Amalekites were the descendants of Esau. They lived in the southern Negev and Sinai Peninsula, so the southern enemies of Israel. As Samuel mentions in verse 2, the Amalekites were the ones who tried to destroy Israel. If you remember in Exodus, there was that moment as they first come up into the land that there's a sneak attack upon them from the rear and the Amalekites start attacking the stragglers of the groups of the large group of Israelites who were traveling north out of the land of Egypt and they attack them there. And then, of course, Moses responds by leading his folks into battle and then Moses has to hold his arms up or they don't win the battle. Remember that whole scene? After the battle, the Lord declares in Deuteronomy 25 that one day he would bring all the Amalekite people to an end because of what they did in treachery against Israel. Now he's offering Saul the honor to fulfill that prophecy and to bring about the end of one of Israel's main enemies. But the Lord's instructions are very specific. Saul is to show no mercy. He must utterly destroy every man, woman, and child, including the king, in the entire region. And every animal of the Amalekites is to be destroyed. And the people of Israel would not take any booty from the land either. No, no possessions of the Amalekites. When you see this instruction in Scripture, there's a term for it. It's not used here, but it's used elsewhere under similar circumstances. It's called being put under the ban. To be placed under the ban meant that every person, beast, and possession is destroyed without mercy or exception. It's a complete wiping out of the existence of something. Nothing survives. Nothing is carried forward. And just to emphasize that the Lord was clear in his expectations, Samuel repeats the word utterly seven times in this account. Just to make double clear that nobody got anything wrong, right? So why did the Lord order such a complete destruction? Well, in short, to make a point. In ordinary warfare, a conquering army would destroy the men, since they pose a threat, typically. But the women and the children would usually be spared so that they could become slaves of the conquering nation. And the choice livestock and all of the precious material would be taken as war booty by the conquering army. That's normal. But the Lord isn't taking Saul to war against the Amalekites so that he can enrich Israel. That's not the point in this battle. By putting the Amalekites under the ban, what comes from this is the world comes to know that God is at work fulfilling the promise that he made centuries earlier to destroy this adversary completely. And therefore, when this action happens and no war booty is taken and no one is left alive, the world has no 
choice but to acknowledge this is the fulfillment of God's word spoken centuries earlier. God gets credit for the victory. More importantly, he is shown to be faithful to his word. Now, if Saul obeys the Lord's command, then naturally Saul himself is going to receive a measure of glory for the victory. That's always the pattern for those who know the Lord, those who are his. The Lord does great things through his people. By working with him, we have the opportunity to share in the reflected glory of God's work, just as Moses' face used to shine after he went to visit and speak with the Lord. You and I receive a measure of reflected glory, if you will, and praise for what God accomplishes in and through us when we obey him. And we also understand that all the credit for that work belongs to the Lord, or so we should. That's, in in essence, the test here for Saul. That's the test of his heart. Heed the word of the Lord, defeat the city, take nothing, forgo any opportunity to become enriched by the victory, don't seek personal credit for the victory, and ensure the world understands God keeps his promises. In a sense, serve the Lord by doing what he's asked. And with that commission from Samuel, Saul then goes out to battle the Amalekites, verse 4. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you show kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So as commanded, he takes this huge force and it says he prepares an ambush. Now, an ambush was traditionally understood to be a less honorable way of prosecuting war. But it was the Amalekites who had ambushed the Israelites in Moses' day. So turnaround was fair play in this case. Living among the Amalekites, we find this other people group descended from Esau, the Kenites. The Kenites descended from Abraham through his third wife, Keturah, which you may remember. Unlike the Amalekites, the Kenites had been kind to Israel when they wandered up through the desert. And so, as you see, Saul repays that kindness here. He allows them to flee before the attack. And then after they're gone, Saul's army just rolls over the the city and over the region. And this is no small victory. I mean, we don't see much of the discussion of the victory in this conversation because that's not the main point. We know he's going to win the battle. God's told him he's going to do it. Despite that, this is a significant victory. The Amalekites were a very powerful people. But God has delivered the the victory. Saul defeats them throughout the region. He kills all the inhabitants just as God directed. Well, everyone except the king, who it says here he captured alive. And as it turns out, he brings his king back to Israel. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Well, now the plan's starting to go awry. Um, they've captured the king. They let him live. Now, never mind that Saul is directly disobeying the Lord's command here. Why would he even want the leader of his enemy to live? Well, there's no reason given in Scripture, so we might suppose that he was simply keeping the adversary as a trophy. That's not uncommon. You keep an opposing king alive as a prisoner or a slave, you humiliate him and his legacy. But regardless of his purpose, it was a sin. He was directly disobeying the Lord's command. Furthermore, his heart seems to be taken in by the prospect of enlarging his personal fortune, because 
It says, also they, the people, they took one look at all the good herds of Agag and they decided it's going to be such a waste to kill all these fine animals. So they take them. They only destroy the things they didn't want, the things that were utterly despicable to them. Every decision Saul is making here is calculated for his own benefit. Every single one. Obeying the Lord is not on his mind whatsoever. It's not partial obedience here. There's literally nothing about what he's doing that's in the Lord's interest. Both those he killed and those he left alive serve his selfish purposes. Saul has failed God's test just as the Lord knew he would. Twenty-five years have passed since Samuel first declared that Saul's dynasty would not stand. And since then, we've been watching Saul's heart move in this direction. Now he has failed this final test. And as a result, the Lord is going to reject Saul personally as king. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. This is probably the climactic verse of the chapter, verse 11, where we're told the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. That phrase, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, only appears three times in all first and second Samuel. Each time it is followed by a word of judgment from God concerning a king. It's a solemn and eternal declaration. The Lord tells Samuel he regrets making Saul king. And that phrase inevitably causes some confusion for us as Bible students. To regret, or the KJV, the the King James Bible says to repent, the Lord repented. That implies to our thinking that God's mind has been changed by certain events that he didn't anticipate beforehand, that he didn't realize all this stuff was going to happen when he made Saul king. And so now that he sees how it's played out, he's totally in regret for what he did when he put him in place in the first time. And so it's confusing for us to consider that the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever is also somehow changeable and lacks omniscience. That would be what we would tend to conclude from the wording. But if you glance down the page briefly to read verse 29, just for a moment. Verse 29, Samuel speaking, says, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. I think the Spirit, knowing our potential confusion up above, has made sure that within the same chapter we have some confirmation of what we already assume to be true. God is not changeable by circumstance. It is not as though something can happen tomorrow that he doesn't already know is coming. So despite the wording in verse 11, Samuel makes clear that the Lord doesn't change his mind down in verse 29. And he adds in that verse, moreover, God is not a man or like a man. And what he means is in the sense that new information could come his way and grab his attention or that his judgments or opinions could be changed as a result of some new information he didn't already have. That's not God. That's a man. God lives outside of time. All events are foreknown by God. So God knew beforehand. Saul would do what Saul did as he put Saul in the place as king. He knew exactly what would happen. He knew how it would turn out. In fact, if you remember, Samuel himself warned the people on two separate occasions that bad things would come if they called for this king. So God was even in the place of warning men about it before him. So there's no surprises here for God. Why then are we told God regretted Saul's reign? Well, in the very few times you find this statement a statement of this kind in Scripture. You see it here. You see it back in Exodus. There's a couple other times in which it's implied. It's always in the context of someone failing a test of the heart. And when the sinful, 
unfaithful, disobedient heart is exposed by a test, the Lord expresses regret at that discovery. It's regret in the sense of sorrow, not in the sense of remorse. So our sin and our disobedience grieve God's heart. And as that is revealed, not to his surprise certainly, but as it's revealed, God is sorrowful for sin. And God's sorrow was, in this case, for Saul turning back from obeying his commands to destroy the city properly. And look what Samuel does in response. Samuel learns the news and it says his heart is broken as well, or at least that's the implication. He's distressed and he cries out all night. And he isn't mourning the discovery that Saul disobeys any more than God is. I mean, he's the one who's seen Saul disobeying for the last 25 years. He's doing what God's doing, distressing over the coming circumstances because of what Saul's sin has made necessary. Samuel understood God will not be mocked, nor will he overlook sin forever. And therefore, if the king of the people is disobedient and receives God's discipline, then he knows the people of God are going to suffer along with him. And watching Samuel's reaction reminds us that what grieves God's heart should also grieve our heart. And Samuel is grieving with God over the sin of Saul. So as Samuel comes to meet Saul following the victory, as you heard, someone tells Samuel where he can find Saul. And in the course of relaying to him that he's down in Gilgal, he also tells the story of the fact that Saul must have traveled up north from the Negev Desert, which is about 25 miles, to a town called Carmel. This is not Mount Carmel up in the north. This is a little town just 25 miles north of the Negev. And then while he's in this town, Carmel, he erects a monument, notice, to himself. He doesn't erect a, an altar or a place of worship to honor the Lord, as other men had done following their great victories in the past. Instead, he wants to glorify his great victory, and so following his victory lap, he goes down to Gilgal where he often spends time. We remember that it was at Gilgal that the Lord rejected Saul's dynasty 25 years earlier because this was the place where he had chosen to make sacrifices without Samuel being present. So we're right back to where we were. And I think I told you back when we studied that in chapter 13 that we'd be back here again for the second time that Saul fails. And this is where he's rejected by the Lord. Samuel confronts Saul in Gilgal. Goes down there, finds him, and in verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Well, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? <laughs> the first one to speak is Saul. It's the same pattern we saw in chapter 13 with Gilgal before. It's the same way the previous confrontation developed. In chapter 13, Saul had become impatient, remember? He sacrificed without Samuel. Samuel's never going to get here and I need to get on with the battle. And then when Saul learns that Samuel has arrived in Gilgal, much to his surprise at that point, he rushes out to meet him, we're told back then. And when you read that chapter, you're left with the impression that Saul must have felt some guilt at being caught sacrificing red-handed, so to speak. And he tried to put the best face on the situation. So he runs out there to sort of, oh, hell, you're here after all, you know, and smooth over the disappointment. Now it appears I think he's doing the same thing again. He sinned with his eyes wide open, and his guilty conscience is showing. So he runs out, and he declares to Samuel, without a trace of irony, that Samuel should feel blessed because Saul has carried out the command of the Lord. The pride and the arrogance of Saul's heart seems to know no limit at this point. He's lying, and he knows it, and he has the audacity to cover his sin with more bald-faced lies. Samuel, for his part, he knows already, because he's heard from the Lord, everything that's been happening. Plus, he got the report from the guy back in, in Carmel about the monument. So he reacts in disgust, and he points out the king's hypocrisy to his face. And in the process, Samuel utters one of the more memorable lines in Scripture. 
one that you know people know this line better better than most. He asked Saul if he in fact had accomplished all that the Lord had commanded him. Why do I hear the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of of oxen? Uh, in other words, he's pointing out the obvious. Not all the animals died, which was in violation to the Lord's commandments, obviously. And given how easy it was for Samuel to see Saul's disobedience, it's utterly ridiculous for Saul to have claimed that he did what the Lord commanded him to do. I mean, it's not even a good lie. You know, look at that. Oh, squirrel. He's trying to keep, he's trying to keep the story up, but it's impossible. So how does Saul defend himself under these circumstances? Verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. I do find it funny that he puts in the word utterly to talk about the portion that he destroyed. When the term itself means get them all. Right? Anyway, first, notice Saul speaks in the third person, referring to the people of Israel, and he talks about what they've done. So Saul didn't make the mistake. The people had a mind of their own. Saul's passing the buck here, pure and simple deflecting blame rather than taking responsibility. The importance of this is it demonstrates to us there's no repentance in this man's heart. He's not owning up to anything that he's done. Then secondly, he says that he had godly reasons to take the animals. He's going to sacrifice them to the Lord. Friends, there is no better cover-up for sin than to claim we did it for God. It's like defending bank robbing by claiming you're going to give all the money to charity. It's a lie and it's an excuse Claiming a sinful act is actually done for righteous purposes. doesn't make it any better. In reality, what he's doing is he's preserving the best animals for himself. We get that. Now that he's been caught, though, he's trying to rewrite history to avoid the wrath of God. Even if, and certainly we're not, but even if we were willing to assume that Saul truly intended to sacrifice all these animals, it still would have been disobedience to the Lord. Right? Any act that isn't consistent with God's will is sin, regardless of how good we make it look. This has become Saul's pattern in the time we've known him. He rules with his heart, not in accordance with the Lord's heart. And as we've said, the Lord intended that he would always rule his people, whether it be through judges or now through a king, but it was always to be that the Lord would dictate the ruling of his people through a servant. The king just existed to carry out the Lord's instructions. But Saul shows no interest in serving the Lord, only himself. And so as he's spinning his yarn here, he forgets, that Samuel has direct access to God with all the facts. So God himself has given Samuel the true story, and it's a reminder that lying to a prophet of God is a really dumb idea. So verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, You were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? I love the beginning of verse 16. Samuel says to Saul, Wait. But in Hebrew, the word means cease or let it go. So Samuel's saying, let it go. I'm having none of it. I don't want to hear your pathetic excuses. Stop digging the hole you're standing in, basically. Instead, Samuel says, let me tell you what the Lord has already told me. To which, I love this, Saul responds, faking interest in the Lord's word. Yes, sure, I want to hear the Lord. Tell me all about what the Lord has to hear. Samuel starts by reminding Saul where Saul came from. Remember, before the Lord elevated him to king, 
Saul knew he was the least among the least tribe of Israel. That's how he expressed himself or how he described himself. He was humble, but more importantly, he had a realistic self-image. Having been anointed as king of Israel, the Lord turned this one who was nothing into one raised up, calling him to serve as king over all the tribes of Israel. Now, you might think that a man plucked from obscurity and elevated in this entirely unexpected way to this grand position beyond anything he could have imagined might have gladly served the Lord. That he might have looked upon his situation as completely beyond anything he could have ever imagined and as a result, he would be eternally thankful and grateful to the Lord and owe him his undying devotion and service. You know, that might be what you'd expect from someone under his circumstances. And that's Samuel's point. Saul has lost all perspective on who he is and who God is. Obedience to the Lord is always directly related to our accuracy of self-image in relationship to our view of God. The more we understand our humble, undeserving, sinful nature, and the more we appreciate God's power and judgment and wrath for sin, the more likely it is we will value his mercy and obey his commands. But when you get those two perspectives reversed, you're headed for a fall. And that's Saul in a nutshell. Samuel nails Saul's true reason here for, for leaving the, the animals alive. Saul simply wanted the spoils of the war for himself. The choice animals were too good to pass up. He could only think about the wealth he would receive. He forgets that he owes everything to the Lord, that everything came from the Lord. He had nothing before this, nothing of any significance. In response to Samuel's rebuke, Saul doubles down on his lie. Verse 20, then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Saul seems to have lost all sense of shame at this point. He repeats the lie. He says, I've obeyed the Lord, when in fact it's obvious he didn't. And again, he points to the people as the real villains. But also notice Saul's word choice there. He, he speaks of your God, not his God. Saul was living so far from the Lord at this point, he stopped seeing God from a personal standpoint, from a personal perspective. Then Samuel responds in poetic language. Verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So why do you think Samuel responds in rhyme? I mean, this isn't Saul the musical. Why is he launch into rhyme speech here. Well, whenever a prophet speaks in poetic structure, and it's very common in books like Isaiah, for example, anytime you see that, it's an indication that his words are spoken under inspiration. Now, obviously, all the scriptures are inspired, but this is saying that Samuel's speech in the moment as he spoke with Saul was coming directly from the Lord to Saul. It's as if for that moment, his mouth was the Lord's. The Lord says in what he spoke, that he delights in obedience even more than pious acts of sacrifice. He prefers a heart, in other words, that desires to please the Lord more so than one that simply performs rituals. Now, when sacrifices were done in the nation of Israel, they themselves were acts of obedience to the law, certainly. But the need for sacrifice itself 
was a result of prior disobedience under the law. Said another way, if there were no disobedience in the first place, there'd be no need for sacrifice either. Had Saul killed all the animals in obedience, there'd have been none left to sacrifice. Proving the point that sacrifice was only made necessary by the fact that he had kept some of the animals. Irony. In verse 23, the Lord compares disobedience to the command of God to divination. Divination is the sin of appealing to demonic power to control the future or know the future. And when we seek to do our own will rather than the will of God, we inevitably are seeking to control the future in place of allowing God's will to reign in our life. When you disobey the Lord, you align with Satan's purposes in that sense. And insubordination is equal to sin and idolatry. Insubordination is just defiance of authority and a refusal to obey orders. It's attempting to put another in God's place, whether yourself or someone else. And that's what Saul did here. And therefore, it's a form of idolatry. I'd rather listen to your word than God's word. And in that sense, you become an idol competing with God. In this case, it was his own word. And with that, the Lord declares that Because Saul rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected him as king. This is a cause and effect outcome for Saul. He wasn't going to have a dynasty. He's already said that. But now he's lost more. Because he might have reigned in peace and security all the days of his own life. He might have achieved great things as king. Those things were still on the table for him, even though his son was not to follow him in rule. That's all assuming Saul obeyed the Lord, though. Those days are over. And he's brought it upon himself, and the word of the Lord has gone forth, and it cannot be changed. Now that he's pressed into into this corner, though, now you're going to see Saul expressing regret. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Oh, what, what happened to the story? Right? Oh, about face. I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. So finally, under pressure, facing the consequences, Saul acknowledges he has sinned. But friends, this is not repentance. This is merely regret. And we can tell because Saul says he has transgressed the command of the Lord. But in Hebrew, the word is better translated overlooked. It's not the traditional word for transgressed. Saul is saying he overlooked a small detail in the overall command that God gave him. That's what he's saying. Now, when you put these two thoughts together you realize that Saul is speaking in a very dismissive tone. He's saying something like, oh, I guess I sinned. If you count those small details I overlooked in God's plan, well then, yes, I guess I did. Hardly the words of a repentant heart. Then he goes the extra step of pulling a page from Aaron's playbook. He blames the people for making him do it, which is what Aaron did with the golden calf. He says, their greed and their desire forced my hand. Well, never mind. Saul is the king. He can do whatever he wants. You know, no one's holding a knife over him. It's just ridiculous. In verse 25, he asked Samuel for forgiveness. But that kind of confession isn't going to gain forgiveness. Never mind, he's asking the wrong person, isn't he? Samuel's just the messenger, right? Saul's words, in a way, remind me of Simon from Acts chapter 8. Remember when Simon is told by the apostles that he can go to hell with his money for he's trying to buy the Holy Spirit? And then the diviner replies to the apostles, well, then pray to your Lord for me for forgiveness. Those who have strayed from God or have never known the Lord as Simon never did, they're uncomfortable speaking with him personally. They ask religious people to intervene on their behalf. You ever had a Thanksgiving dinner where you're the only believer at the table? Guess who gets asked to give the prayer? Right? It's the same thing here. It's another indication of where the heart is that they have no sense that they can go directly to the Lord for forgiveness. They don't have a relationship on any basis that they can make that appeal. Finally, and perhaps worst of all, Saul says he needs Samuel's forgiveness so he can worship the Lord. 
This is a purely cynical move on his part. He is no more interested in truly worshiping the Lord than he was in obeying the Lord. In fact, Scripture tells us that true worship is obedience. Saul's merely doing eye service here in an attempt to ingratiate himself to Samuel and maybe to God if that were possible. Now we see Samuel's response, verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor, who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Samuel refuses to participate in Saul's charade of worship. He wants to go to a place of worship that they commonly go and and offer sacrifice. He says, I'm not going to go there with you. Samuel reiterates, the Lord rejected you. That's final. It's not subject to negotiation. I'm not going to worship with the man that God has rejected. And friends, this is a central truth of Scripture. As the Lord determines what he will do, he will do it. And there's just no going back on it. There's no negotiating with God over his plans. Even in scenes that you might think out of, like in Genesis, when Abraham is trying to pray with God to get Lot out of the city of Sodom. When you go back and look at that carefully, you realize that there's nothing that Abraham said that changed anything God had intended to do in the first place. So it all transpired exactly as God intended it from the beginning. God allows this opportunity to appeal in that way so that we can conform to him, not so that he can conform to us. A wise theologian once said that praying to God is like sitting in a boat tied to the land, tied to a dock, and pulling on the rope. Who moves, the dock or the boat? And and that's exactly how it is with prayer. We move closer to God's will. He doesn't move to us. Because God had already determined what would be done in response to Saul's sin. There was nothing that could change his mind. God already had all the information from the very beginning when he made his original decision. In fact, God is the author of history so that all that transpires happens according to his will. And all that happens is according to his eternal plan, which was established before the foundations of the earth. So it is literally impossible for God to change his mind as his mind has arrived at the perfect outcome from the beginning. If it were possible or were he to entertain a change, he would have to, by definition, be going from perfection to something less. Because he starts at perfection from the beginning in terms of his plans. So Samuel turns to leave, as you saw, and in a moment of great irony here, Saul reaches out, grabs Samuel's cloak to stop him, and rips his garment. Saul is losing his grip on power and reality, so he is desperately reaching out to grab hold of God's mercy, as it were, represented in Samuel, seeking something by his might, by his strength, as he reaches out to grab it, which could only be found in faith and obedience. And as he rips the garment, Saul is watching the rule of Israel being rent from his own hands, as Samuel says. And then Samuel informs Saul, a better man has been found than you. It's obviously a premonition of what's happening in the next chapter. The knowledge that there is another man out there who is to become his successor torments Saul for the final 15 years of his reign. And it will become a test for Saul's successor as he respects the reign of Saul in the last years of his, of his time on the throne. Finally, the chapter ends with Samuel tying up some loose ends. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, 
As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed, uh, hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gilbeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel honors the office of king here by agreeing to accompany Saul to worship. That's what he's doing. He's honoring the office of king because to do otherwise would have dishonored the king in the eyes of the people, which is what Saul is concerned about. You notice here again, true to his character. He's very little concerned with the Lord's perspective, but he's very concerned with the people's perspective. And so he has appealed to Samuel to follow me. Don't make me look bad in front of all the people. You've got to go worship with me. And out of respect for the office... Samuel does it. His willingness to honor the office of king foreshadows David's behavior in the next series of chapters. He honors those who God has raised up in service, and he does so regardless of whether the individual deserves the honor personally or not. Finally, Samuel finishes the job that Saul should have done. He calls for the king, and he he hacks him to death. You know, Samuel may be old, but he can swing a sword, apparently, and he takes care of the problem of Agag. In verse 33, he tells Agag before he kills him why he has to die. This isn't wanton lust. This is about the Lord's command, but it's specific to why God asked for this outcome in the first place. The Amalekites, if you remember, they launched that attack against the Israelites when they came out of the the land of Egypt in the Exodus. They launched it as an ambush, coming against the rear ranks of the people of Israel. This is a column of people, something close to two million. So you know when you're moving two million people through the desert on a trail, that it stretches out that group of people a tremendous amount. And the stragglers at the end were the ones who got killed. And in a column like that, the rear ranks were always the women and followed lastly by the children. So when the Amalekites attacked Moses and the people, they made many mothers childless by taking on children. That's why it was such a cowardly act. That's why it was condemned by the Lord and deserving of God's retribution. They essentially attacked a bunch of children. And now Agag and his people are paying the price which is as what God said. This is the last time Samuel sees Saul. But as I said, Saul rules for another 15 years. And we see that last 15 years play out in the last part of this book, even as the next man is being raised up. So the interplay between David and Saul is the rest of the book. So the story of First Samuel takes a sharp turn next chapter. Next chapter is the anointing of David. And a scene you probably know pretty well. And then from there, David's rise through his attack of Goliath, and then to the court, and then to leading armies, and the whole time Saul increasingly jealous, increasingly paranoid over this rise of David, and eventually he starts attacking and chasing David throughout the desert for ten years. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons of Saul's life. Thank you, Father, that even men who don't serve you with the heart that you desire can still be useful to you in training others. Father, we want to be useful. We want to be one you would use as um, an instrument to bring godliness to others. But, Father, we pray it's because we serve you in obedience and can serve as a good example. We prefer, Father, never to be that example you hold up as the negative uh, example for life. And, Lord, give us a heart that wants obedience, wants to please you, is not concerned with eye service or sacrifice and piety just for the sake of what others think of us. Father, let us always have a concern for what matters to you. And, uh, Father, bring us back for these lessons as you continue in your word. Let us finish this book as you give us opportunity. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.